This week, we answer a listener question about how to find product market fit, and we hear about Rick's recent successes. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. So what's going on, Rick? I am done with open enrollment, and I have some metrics to report. Nice. Before metrics, how are you like stressed? Are you relaxing now? What's going on? So I was up till about midnight Tuesday, which was the last day, the 15th uh, for Utah. Open enrollment is still going on for other states, but Utah ended on the 15th. And I woke up yesterday, the 16th, with back pains, clouded mind. Like I, I definitely took yesterday as a recovery day. And then today mm-hmm. I've, I haven't gotten much done, but I've gotten caught up on things. Um, and then tomorrow I think I'll feel good. Okay, cool. A, a two day recovery from a six week kind of sales bonanza seems not too bad, but okay, cool. What are the metrics? Well, um, we ended with nine, 94 users, uh, 30, 40 clients and three. And, uh, and sorry, Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So four. So I'll I'll run through and then I'll explain. So okay, uh, ninety four users, uh, thirty nine clients, and three employers. Um, the employers are the three of those pay us a subscription fee of twenty dollars per employee per month to offer a stipend, along with uh, co- health insurance concierge services slash basically HR outsourcing. Um, the clients, uh, the forty clients, represent people households of which we are the agent on their family's health insurance policies. Um, and users are people who have created a leg up health account. We don't make any money on, on users, but um, we do have, uh, we did have a lot of signups. Uh, people come through last minute uh, on the 15th and it was cool. So high level, this translates to 2000 uh, ish dollars, really probably 50, yeah, 2000 ish dollars um, to start January, 2021 up from $0 last year. Damn, not bad. And that's a, a monthly recurring revenue number. Yeah. So I'm curious, the users are using like a free product. And I, I mean, I think the idea is it's sort of a lead gen basically for them to become, for you to be the agent of record so you can start making money. Is that the path? Was it like 90 people signed up for the the thing and then some percentage of them converted or are they like two separate channels and the free channel didn't really wasn't important towards the actual revenue you're making. Every client is also a user. So um, 100% of our clients came from people who became users. So yeah, it was actually, I don't know how much of that is them signing up because of the free service more so than that's just the process for becoming a client. But uh, there were definitely people who set up a user account that were not clients earlier in the year and became clients in the last week which is kind of cool because that means we kind of nurtured a relationship with them through the free service. Um, And then they made us the agent uh, for 2021. So you're not going to have an answer to this, but I just want like your gut reaction. What do you value one of those free users at? Ah, gosh, that's a good point. I don't know. Uh, There are different types of free users. So there's certain, we had, we have like four users who are on Medicaid, which I, I can't say they have zero value, but, we don't make money on them, but they are people who love us because we make their life a lot easier and they tell their friends about us. So there's mm-hmm. like a, and that the, the, the really interesting thing about the Medicaid users is that that's a, that's a way, that's an opportunity and channel for us to give back to the community um, as sort of a, 
our, on our advocacy front. Um, but that's a, so there's some value there. I just, I don't know. Well, no, no one hopes to be on Medicaid forever. Some people really like it. I'm surprised. Like, oh, okay. Because it's free. It's well, basically free. But you everything. can't be on Medicaid if you're, you, you have to be making a pretty small amount of money to be on it, right? Well, there are some people who ins- make sure they don't make more than a certain <laughs> amount so that they stay on Medicaid. God, the United States is fucked. Okay. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> and sorry. What I mean by that is that it's so hard to get healthcare other ways that yes. you'd rather be poor than make money and have to figure out your own health insurance. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, at some point they might get a job that pays more and then go into premium tax credit zone. Um, but yeah, there are some people, I just want to be very clear. There are some Medicaid people who are on Medicaid because they want to be on Medicaid and they do a lot to make sure they stay on Medicaid. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but uh, then there's Medicare uh, users and then there's employer sponsored users. Uh, for someone, for a user who signs up and uses the free service that buys their own health insurance, I'd probably, gosh, right now they're worth, we have a 50% conversion rate. So right now, like just on the math that we have, they're worth uh, $200 a year. Wow. Yeah. That's so if, if you, Kind of like, I, I get that that's not money in your pocket yet, but if you say, okay, you've got, I'm rounding to, to round numbers. If you've got 30 paying users and another 60, the, the 90 number you gave, 30 of those are paying, right? So there's 60 that are free and not- 40. Four, okay, 40 that are free. Okay, so you've kind of got, in a sense, you've got 20 actual paying users from that in terms of long-term lifetime value. That's cool. That's, that's great. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then what I'm also finding, the other big, I would say, win was leg up benefits started to resonate uh, with people. And I'm realizing that I don't know how to explain it yet to people, but a big, big component of it is um, is just outsourced HR. It's not mm-hmm. stipend administration. It's not, uh, hey, yeah, my employees are going to be able to call you about health insurance. It's the business owner being able to lean on leg up health for how much, you know, recommendations on how much money they should give each employee, um, you know, helping them answer new hire questions. It's, it's this, like, I can't explain it other than it's like, it's like out. The one guy, the most recent customer who signed up, um, he, he explained it as I will pay you $20 per employee per month just to have you help make me not have to make decisions on benefits. That makes so much sense. This is something I didn't appreciate nearly enough in the early days of starting a business. If you're selling to other businesses, yeah, it's like, how much money do you make or, you know, this or that, but there's, there's a thousand things a small business owner has to do. And if you can take one of them off their plate, it's almost not an ROI calculation at that point. It's just like, great. Like my life gets better if I don't have to think about this. So yeah, that that's awesome that you've, I, I bet there's huge growth potential for you there. I, I think so too. And what you just said made me realize that it's, people want this, but it's in the, in the insurance space that I'm playing in, no one is trustworthy. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't say no one, but the vast majority of providers are not trustworthy. So you can't trust recommendations. So if, if, if I, if we can build like up benefits in a way that provides unbiased, like business, like based database recommendations, and they can rely on that, that they, they, people will pay for that because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Establishing, your, establishing yourself as trustworthy is easier said than done though. Like what, what do you actually do to prove 
they can trust you and not, you know, these other guys. Exactly what we've been doing, which is don't sell, educate. And yeah. it's uh, just and reputation. It's reputation. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I've been thinking, speaking about trust, this is a completely, a complete segue, but the more I think about like what is important to grow a business, especially within a startup to last mindset, it's all comes down to trust. Everything, the foundation of all growth is trust. Growth in a relationship with your employees or your co-founder, uh, growth um, with your customers in terms of word of mouth, any sort of growth, organic growth that you need in, in, in a start to last bootstrapping mindset comes from trust. And that, you know, even SEO is trust. It's how much does Google trust you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, um, so I'm just, yeah, it's, it's such an important concept. Yeah. For, and I know you said this, but I just want to double down on it for long-term results, because the reality is all this other, all this stuff that like shitty startups do to trick people, it works for a while, 10 years later, it doesn't work, but they're already got, they're like, well, I exited. I don't care at that point. So it's not that that other stuff doesn't work. It's that eventually it catches up to you. Do you totally. agree with that? Yeah, totally. I mean, you trust, take spamming people for a second on email. Like eventually the domain provider says, the email provider says, you, you suck. We're going to send all your stuff to spam email. Like, but that doesn't happen right away. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, a couple of learnings. Other, yeah, yeah, two learnings related to this. One is uh, I am expecting some churn. So uh, for, we we went in with, I think it was 18 clients, came out with 40. Uh, and then I'm expecting five, three to five of those 18 um, original ones to churn. That's a very conservative estimate. In reality, probably two will. And they um, the reason that they're churning is they're going to a group plan. They got, they okay, got a so- job. Churn is interesting for you because as long as they're paying for insurance, there's no real reason they're going to switch away from you. So churn is really like not renewing rather than kind of actively canceling. And that really only happens once a year for most people unless they get a job or something like that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Both of the changes were related to the their their job becoming more port- permanent. Um, they mm-hmm. were working part-time and now they're full-time and benefit eligible. And so they're get, jumping on the group health insurance plan. That's great. Yep. I mean, I, well, it's great that that's a pretty low churn rate because that's annual. I, normally, churn rates talked about monthly, where obviously it depends so much on who you're selling to. But I would, I think, five percent is normally considered like an okay number for a company at, at your stage, which comes out to fifty more than fifty percent per year. Um, you're definitely not seeing anywhere close to those numbers. That that's fantastic. Like we're at one point seven, maybe one point eight percent per monthly. month. No. And that's like, I think about as good as it can get. Like, I don't think we can do any better. And you're already probably beating us just because of the nature of w- what you're selling. That's oof. so many things about your business are just like fantastic. <laughs> and, and honestly, uh, it's, and I, when I gave the $2,000 monthly recurring revenue base starting point for January, that was factored in the churn. So, um, I'm feeling pretty good. I, oh, and by the way, I just got a I got my first Stripe payment this week from an employer client. That nice. felt so good. Two hundred and fifty nine dollars from Leg Up Benefits, and that, wow. that's like how much did you have to work for it? Or, or like, obviously there's like a sales thing, but are you earning? I shouldn't say are you earning. Of course you're earning it. Is that a hard two hundred and fifty dollars to come by? It was a so no. This is this goes into my third update. So let me come back to that. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, so um, what I'm realizing about our business is that. 
and I someone pointed this out today. It, I keep saying our this leg up health and leg up benefits has legs, meaning it walks without me. It, I can sit here and at this point and know that we will grow next month because of just of our clients. Maybe not by the, as much as I want to, but it just people talk about it and recommend it. Um, but it's you know I thought it was profession specific, like dentists talk to dentists, real estate agents talk to real estate agents. It's not at all. And maybe there's a factor there in terms of proximity of people talk, you know, likely to talk to each other, but it's all events specific. So open enrollment triggered word of mouth. Um, when someone loses a job, it triggers word of mouth. When someone, uh, when a company cancels health insurance, it triggers word of mouth. When someone has an income change, it triggers word mm. of mouth. When, when they have a healthcare event, they are thinking, they get pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. All these are the triggers and figuring out how to position for the triggers versus the profession is a huge learning coming out of Q4. Um, and the reason I brought that up is uh, uh, related to the how much I need to work is that open enrollment, from a sales standpoint, I didn't have to work at all. I did no sales. It was all referral, word of mouth, online signups, and me people asking me questions. So I'm curious, you said like it's all about positioning yourself for these events. That's, first of all, that's a great insight because th this is the thing I always struggle with is no one ever talks about CRM with each other. People also don't talk about health insurance until it's the most important thing on their mind. When you say positioning, is this, is this SEO? Is this uh, something else? So I, I don't know yet. And maybe it's, you know, making so, it so that when a real, finding it, it's, it's finding out where people go when the event is triggered. So you know, the way I would think about this um, from a marketing standpoint, and I haven't, this is just me spitballing. I haven't done this yet, but an exercise that we need to do probably in early next year is map our customer journeys. So look at all of our user journeys and, and say, okay, this person became a client, but what was the start of their journey? Oh, they had a life event or, oh, they lost their job. Where did they go and how did they make their way to leg up health? And, yeah. and figuring out, okay, well, where could we have been along that journey um, earlier in the process? And where and, and maybe where are we missing other people? The, the commonality uh, between you know, all the people who found Leg Up Health is they knew someone who had an interaction with Leg Up Health. So they, they had their life event and then they, they generally um, either uh, ask, talk to someone that they cared about, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend, a spouse, um, a coworker, someone similar to them. And they said, hey, who do you use? And those people said, boom, uh, you know, check out Leg Up Health. They were great for me. And what would be even better is if they're like, is if their reaction is, oh, yeah, I've seen leg up health. Cool. Th that's kind of your maybe, obviously, you'll keep executing on what you're doing, but maybe the, the level up from where you are is when they hear that recommendation, it's their second or third or fourth touch point. Exactly. And I, what I can't decide is whether that is something to focus on, like geographically. Maybe it's like instead of focusing on Utah, it's focusing on a, 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 a zip code um, and generating like local word of mouth within that zip code, or is it a, a profession, um, a, a micro profession. I, I don't know what the right way is to generate, to get that sort of word of mouth, but yeah, that's one yeah. way. My, my instinct on that is, so there's some types of marketing that directly convert. So like Google mm -hmm. AdWords is a classic example. There's other types that startups normally don't go after because it's more like a branding thing. Um, sponsoring a conference is an example of this where it's like nobody signs up for something because they sponsor a conference. But if all you want to do is have them hear your name, if there's like a cosmetology local, like Utah conference, 
putting some money there and just having everyone see your logo seems like it might be an interesting thing to try. Totally agree. Uh, like what I would, that's what I would call local community outreach. It's just local branding, right? But going back to your earlier comment about uh, what was it? Um, the uh, value of a user. Um, a lot of my referrals came from non-client users, meaning they had they knew Leg Up Health because of how great we were to help them, you know, with their Medicaid or with their mm. uh, employer plan. And when they came across someone who needed their own health insurance, they're like, "Go check out Leg Up Health. That's, they're great." This is so interesting. I, I have a few thoughts here. One, okay, so I'm trying to think, how does this apply to me? I I love your insight about it's event based. Probably every company could benefit from thinking about this. What I'm thinking about right now is what's the event that causes someone to buy a CRM? It's their old CRM is renewing. I haven't really thought about marketing in that way. And maybe there's nothing for me to do. Like, how could I possibly know when their Salesforce contract expires? But it's almost making me thinking like if, if I'm doing a top of funnel, like lead capture thing, maybe the most important question I can answer is when does your current CRM expire? Totally. I've I mean, never thought of that before. <laughs> yep, totally. And, and, and at people keep the example of this, what the most common time a company would evaluate uh, a replacement of their group health insurance with people keep was when their group health insurance renewed. So we would always ask mm. when's your, if they said, if they had group health insurance, when's your renewal date? That makes so much sense. I bet almost every company could do something like that. Totally. Um, the other thought I have, we, we should not dive into this right now, but just like I'm like so gung-ho about what you're doing. I think this sounds great, but to throw a bit of a wet blanket on it, I feel like you're going to face a new type of competitor two years from now because the, I, I've, I've observed three businesses, yours being the third, where it just seems like you're walking into this wide open, uncompetitive gold mine right now. Uh, the other two, I can think, I don't know them as much personally, but Transistor in the podcasting space and the real big one, Tuple, uh, who Ben was on this podcast. Uh, he's one of their founders a long time ago. With Tuple, I mean, it, they're talented founders and all that, but it's obvious they just like found this market that there's no competition, there's huge demand, great profit margins, and it's like too good of a business. I feel like everything you're saying, it's too good of a business. There have to be other people who are going to come in and do this. I think there are two uh, differences with leg up health and leg up benefits that don't apply that, that aren't the same about tuple and transistor. One is mm -hmm. regulatory, highly mm -hmm. regulated industry, which creates all sorts of moat uh, around the business Two, uh, the, uh, the second one is the, um, service costs. Uh, th this is not a SaaS business. And so it's much less attractive for what I, I would call, um, technical people, smart money people, to, yeah, it's not going to scale the way tuple scales. Mm -mm. Yeah. So this is a much longer road. So like the startup to, la to last mindset. It, it would take a it would take someone with a startup to last mindset or a significant venture capital amount. But I think venture capital would destroy this business. There's no yeah there aren't there's no way the returns ever justify VC money here. I mean you already knew this, but just to say what you already knew, like my takeaway from what you just said is figuring out how to scale support without reducing the quality. Because that's the problem. Is there have probably been plenty of independent insurance agents doing as good as you're doing right now. But the point is, then they try to, they say, I'm going to hire one or two or three people, and the third person is not doing it as well. That seems like a really big inflection point you're going to face over the next few years. Yep. This this business uh, makes or breaks its long-term competitive advantage on their ability to sell, to scale quality and, and quality assure our customer service. 
And if we can't do that, we would fail. I love that. I love because I mean, Tuple's doing amazing. But I, every time I talk to Ben, I'm like a little nervous. I'm like, it's too good. Like everyone should want that business, which is how you get competition. Yours, yeah. Maybe a lot of people don't want it, but it's great for you. And that's anytime I think about competition, you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to do that no one else is willing to do? And you've got that question answered, which is but, great. But part of the reason I felt comfortable going down this road is because it's exactly what you've done at Less Annoying CRM over the years. No one wants to serve small businesses on their CRM for $10 a month. So you did that. 15 now. Oh yeah, 15. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that's awesome. I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh, yeah, that's so that's my update. Um, you asked me how hard was I working on the Stripe thing. I don't want to go with that mm-hmm. uh, on the Stripe thing. It's all it, from a sales standpoint, not working, but from a you know an education standpoint to get to that point, it was a solid couple hours of calls um, over the course of a, of a week. Um, but once that customer signed up, uh, they paid really quickly, and they uh, all you know they were they added all their employees, and half of their employees became clients. Oh, amazing. So you, I think you said it was for 150 something dollars, $250, $250, but plus there's the commissions and presumably that first part was the busiest time, both because it was initial setup and it was open enrollment. You're not going to have to work that hard every month for it. Even if you, I mean, two, two, three hours of work for $250 plus commissions, even if you had to do that every single month, that'd be worth it. Yep. Amazing. Great. Yeah. So I'm feeling I, I, I'm feeling good. It's still small numbers. I want to be very realistic here. $2,000 per month is not going to sustain this business, but it's a great place to start uh, in January, especially given the systems that we've built. Um, and I look forward uh, in our next, uh, one of our future episodes, last episodes of the year, talking about what I'm thinking about for 2021. Yeah. What's, awesome. up, what's on your mind though? I've got just some little kind of random things. One, I mentioned... A week or two ago, I'm doing this advent of code thing where everyone on the team is writing code to solve these little problems. Actually, most of us have quit by now. They, they get harder and harder. And they're like at a, a difficulty right now where I can still solve them, but it takes long enough that I'm like, is it worth it? <laughs> well, it's, it's the opposite of like at the true advent calendar where the presents get better and better. Oh, is that supposed to happen? I think the candy, the little compartment things as a kid, the candy got better on each yeah. day of Christmas. Well, if you're a better programmer than me, a harder question maybe is better. But um, the reason I bring it up is I think I've learned something about myself because it's really interesting. You see your code plus, in my case, I'm doing with the other people at my company, but a lot of um, a lot of people publish their code online. So even if you don't have a like peer like peers at your company to do it with, you can see other people's. And you can kind of compare, well, how did I do this versus how did they? And something I've seen about myself, I think I am better at creative problem solving than the average other person who's doing this at our company in the sense that like there's there's a challenge and I just get through it. But then when you look at our code, what I do is so much less disciplined than everyone else. Everyone else is like writing good code and um, applying things they know rather than just, I feel like I'm inventing it from scratch every single time, if that makes sense. I'm just like, with enough loops and if statements and variables, I can solve this thing. And everyone else is like, I either know the algorithm, I either like know a pattern for solving this or I don't. But so anyway, it's it's making me, I, I think this is a way of saying like, I am more entrepreneurial and like worse at being a specialist. Interesting. So you like taking a problem and solving it creatively every time versus uh, learning that all the solutions and applying it over and over again. 
Yeah, and like uh, the, the thing about this, you never have to touch that code again. So I, I am answering the questions faster than most of the other people. And there are some that I've answered that other people haven't. But you would never want to touch my code again. It's it's just a disaster. It's completely unmaintainable. Uh, and yeah, I, I look at, well, all the code I wrote back in the day in the early days of Less Knowing CRM, it's like that. And now all we hi- we make a new hire. And it's like someone fresh out of college who really doesn't know what they're doing. And they're looking at this like, who wrote this crap? And it's like, well, <laughs> me. <laughs> yep anyway what's an um, example though like is it is it uh i mean are you like what's an example of a question that you're getting on the advent of code that uh, that's well, it's like so something cutesy. interesting it's so cutesy that the premise is like i think you're supposed to be santa and it's like you're going on vac. i guess all the previous years i haven't done them but you like save save christmas this year it's like you're taking a vacation because of how hard you worked in previous years. So you have to like get to your vacation destination. It's like you're on the airplane, but the navigation system breaks. Here's a bunch of like muddled input that's encrypted and you have to decrypt it or that type of thing. So, but specifically in terms of how it relates to solving it, I just like loop through and throw a million things in an array. And then I loop through that array and throw it in another array. And I'm like, it's just a really inefficient solution. And, but it works. I don't know. I, that's how I would approach solving the problem. I, what what does the other type of person do in that situation? Um, normally, there's like, oh, if I only if I'm looping through this data set, I can like do all the processing at once. Like, I only need to loop through it once. And th- I mean, that's just one example. Every problem's different, but um, there's also kind of abstraction where you can make functions and classes and stuff to, it just cleans up the code. I don't know. I'm not doing a good job of articulating this, but. To a non-technical person though, like what's the difference between, like what's the difference in the approach? Is it, is it, is you said the word efficiency? Is it like yours is less efficient code, meaning it would run, take longer to run uh, or time long, more time to operate? Or is it, it's not accuracy. Yeah. Most of the time it would take longer to run. If you, I mean, even if you don't know how to code, you can probably imagine looping through a data set means you go line by line and do something. If I'm looping through it over and over and over again, it takes longer. But like maybe an analogy I could make is, let's say I'm a good cook, but my kitchen's just a mess. And I'm just like, I don't have anything labeled and I'm just throwing stuff in and the outcome is what you want it to be. But nobody could, like if I hired a second cook to come in and reproduce what I'm doing, they could never follow along. Um, whereas someone else labels stuff and has them, everything has a place in the right drawer. I mean, that's like kind of a tortured analogy, but it's something like that. Oh, I like it. It's, I, you're describing my mom and the way she cooks and it's impossible to say family recipes because she doesn't work off recipes mm-hmm. and I have to clean and I always had to do the dishes and I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So everyone else I work with is doing the dishes for all the cooking I did in 2012. <laughs> That's helpful. Cool. That's, um, I'm, I think uh-huh. I'm, I'm less, I feel like I might be the opposite of you in this regard with my coding. I feel like I'm less creative and more disciplined, but it slows me down big time. I do. Yeah. I think disciplined programmers write code slower for sure. But at a, as a company becomes more mature, you should, you know, things should be tested and like reviewed and stuff and the mode. And I, I'm realizing why I can't really contribute to our code base as much anymore is they have put all these safety nets in place to make sure bad code doesn't get written. And it frustrates the hell out of me. I'm like, no, I, I can see the finish line. It's 30 minutes away and you're making me do two hours of work. No. <laughs> because you have to pass the test. 
I have to pass the test. Yeah. Which is good. It's all good, but I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. What does that mean Um, for like the rest of the business outside of code to have this learning about yourself? Uh, This is something I think I'm going to talk about when we do our like end of year recap. But one thing I want to lean into a little bit next year is the company does not iterate quickly. Um, It's it's not like bad. It's just we're more mature. We're you know we're not like a startup anymore exactly. But I still want to iterate quickly. So what I want to do is carve out a niche for myself where without causing chaos for everyone else, I want to be able to run experiments and move fast and then basically say. I learned something, now let's systematize it, and everyone else is good at that. Why do you feel like you need to do that on, on your own? Um, it doesn't have to be just me, but I mean, the reason big companies move slowly is because like, you, the risk of something going wrong is much greater when you're serving a lot of people. Um, I don't want to threaten what we've already got. Also, I think like there's a too many cooks in the kitchen problem. If everyone's just chaotically going around with no system, it, it doesn't work. I think it Maybe you can like firewall people off where this person's doing this and that person's doing that. But I don't think a team of people can all be entrepreneurial together. I don't know. I like it. And if you figure it out on your own, you could systematize the experimentation that you're doing and give everyone the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say there's one other person in particular, like I think my experimentation is going to be mostly related to marketing next year if if I can stay focused. So like Eunice is the marketing person. I plan on working closely with her on it, but like, I'm not going to, it's not going to be 19, all 19 people at the company just flailing around wildly. You know, I'm excited about that. I can't wait to talk to you more about that because I think I'm going to be focused on marketing a lot next year. Uh, and I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, another update. I have just been doing so many interviews. I'm like burnt out on interviews. It's for this design fellowship thing that I said we're doing. So I'm interviewing people who don't have any design experience for a position where they'll learn design. And each one's an hour and a half. And we, I didn't put any filters in place to get an interview because I didn't think that many people would apply. And then I think it was 14 or 15 people ended up applying. And it was like too late. But by the time I realized it, it was too late to be like, let's actually put a filter in place before we do the full interview. So I'm doing, you know, whatever that comes out to, 20-something hours of interviews over a couple weeks. <laughs> I did the exact same thing when I posted the internship, thinking like four people would apply. Yeah. And once you do, when you don't do that, it creates... It's. I feel like this is one of those things where if you create scarcity, um, sometimes... Uh, more people apply. So potentially you could have gotten more applicants by saying you, you were less available. I don't know. Do you think you got more applicants because you you guaranteed an interview or but would you have gotten less? I gotten, don't think they knew it was guaranteed. Okay. So yeah, you basically just made yourself committed to yourself to a lot of work. Well, you live and learn. Um, are you, are you excited that this many people want to learn design? I am. Yes. Um, How many spots do you have? Probably four, um, maybe if we have really, really good applicants, five, I think is the max. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. And we, we already had uh, a few really good, really strong candidates and we're about halfway through. So I'm feeling good about it. Um, which actually that segues nicely into my final update, which is, so we're getting ready to do recruiting for the coding fellowship, not the design fellowship. The coding fellowship is this thing we do every summer. We've got experience with it. Whereas the design fellowship's brand new, which is why there's no process and why I messed up this interview thing. In January, we're going to start recruiting for the coding fellowship. And uh, part of that is I'm preparing a talk 
with a coworker of mine, Malia, who was also on this podcast a while ago, uh, about diversity and recruiting. And we're going to kind of go to this, the biggest startup event in St. Louis and, and give this talk as a way to try to recruit for this. So I'm working on preparing a recruiting diversity talk. That's great. Uh, who's And is the audience uh, all your whole company or just the fellowships? Well, the audience is like random people in the St. Louis startup scene. Okay. Um, okay. So it's, it's everyone. It's the world. Yeah. Okay. It's the world. I think, you know, the, the event is called Venture Cafe, which exists in different cities, but it's pretty big in St. Louis. Uh, I don't think there are many people who would actually do the fellowship at Venture Cafe. So it's mostly people who are maybe like work at nonprofits or community leaders who might then know someone spread the word to other people. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And plus it gets your brand out there for other jobs that you might post in the future. It's, that sounds like a great thing. And you have a story to tell about it. Can I, can I run my pitch for basically the title? Like you got to, you know, there's multiple events going on at once and people decide what they want to go to. So who even cares if the content's good? I need a title that gets people to attend. I'm, I don't have like the exact terminology, but what I'm trying to, what I'm thinking about as a hook to get people to attend is basically setting up a diverse recruiting process is no different than setting up a sales process. I think that's the pitch I was interested in going after. Does that intrigue you at all? It depends on who I am. If I mean, I, I feel like sales process is pretty specific in that people who yeah, want to build it. Yeah. My, my reasoning, I, I don't think I nailed it, but my reasoning is these are people who probably diversity is not a thing that they care about a whole lot, but they're like super interested in talking business. Um, and so I wanted to like relate it to, we're going to talk about funnels and optimization and stuff, but it's going to be applied to recruiting. Yeah. That's so what I, I was hoping for. Yeah. What if you said that, um, the, 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 the funnel for diver diversified hiring mm. or something like, like reverse it so that what you're, what you want to be important is first and then apply yeah. diversity after it. Yeah. The sales process for diversity hiring. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the, the funnel one. I'm going to riff off that. I'm going to play around with that one. So cool. Thanks. <laughs> the other option is to say, you know, diversity is a very popular topic right now. So people, you have a, you have a hard battle there because one it's, uh, it's been beaten to death. Not that it is, it needs to be beaten to death. I'm not saying, it yeah, shouldn't yeah. Be, but people are probably, there's certain people who are just going to be like, I can't go to another thing. I'm diversity right now. Um, yeah, that's why I, I'm hoping to be like, you're going to get some insights about how to like run a business here, but we're going to apply it to kind of diversity topics. But yeah, I, well, we'll see. Duke University started like during COVID, they started in the, during the diversity stuff, they started like spamming their alumni. And I, I must've gotten one week, 30 emails from them about the diversity efforts they were doing. I just unsubscribed from them all because it was just too much because it, it kept happening. And I kept getting added to people's calendars for calls. It was just too much. Wow. Um, but so I think I, I just, so I'm maybe overly sensitive to it, but um, it's good that we're talking about this stuff. I don't know. I, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but did you see, um, I think I sent you an article about my high school being uh, in the news on the New York times. I went to a private high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so kind of interesting uh, issue that I think is going to come up more and more where 
um, two black people in this case, one black person at the school and, and a parent of a black student disagree with how to deal with, um, you know, racial, uh, education, racism, education on systemic racism. And it led to a big blow up, um, at my school where a, a black administrator who, uh, you know, built some curriculum around, um, diversity and inclusion and systematic racism into the, um, mostly white school curriculum, uh, a black parent, um, of a black student, uh, you know, had a problem with the approach and it blew up into a place where, um, you know, the, the, it, you know, the school, um, had to terminate the enrollment for the kid because of the, the what, the, what they say, the parent, the, the way that the parent was behaving. And, yeah. uh, I just think, I think as this becomes more widely talked about, there's going to be more conflict about how to deal with it now that people want to deal with it. Um, and I, I didn't expect that, but it's very obvious to me now having seen that play out. I don't know if you've had, if you've had experiences with that. Um, I mean, I read the article you sent me about your school. I mean, that was like a very heated, high stakes situation. I haven't had anything like that. But actually, to to relate it back to what I was just saying about this presentation, I think most people who are on the forefront of this would say diversity is not what we should be talking about. That's over talked about equity and inclusion. So like the acronym is DEI. Well, it's not an acronym. It doesn't spell anything. But DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think people I listen to are saying, Diversity gets too much attention. It's about demographics. Do you hire people who are women, people who are black? It's not about do you actually make them feel welcome and put them in a position to succeed. And that's the equity and inclusion part. And this talk, the thing is, I don't think that's what the startup, I don't think the startup world is there yet. So this talk's going to be about diversity, even though I don't think that's the part that we should be talking about from what I understand. So I, that's like a really minor, like insignificant version of what you're talking about. But yeah, like, it's it's a complex topic flying up though like it happens all the time it's it's a uh, you know you, you finally agree on the problem like hey there's a problem here and then everyone wants to fight about how to solve the problem you know and it's and and you know that's when you just the best thing to do is to slow down right so you know and and get everyone on the same page with what the problem actually is but it 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 it's it's fascinating like how that plays out and how conflict arises from it and I, I I'm kind of in, I'm I, reading what I know now I'm very disappointed with how the schools handled it um, uh, but I but I also understand the way they handled it from the perspective of the administrator who was quote unquote bullied by the parent um, but it's it's I think. So t sometimes we get so focused on the problem and we get so clear on the problem, but we forget about how hard it is to actually solve it uh, afterwards. This is going like wildly off topic, but th that makes me think of something that I, th I think I learned this year about myself, which is so th there's a problem. Politi people kind of think, well, you should be able to be friends with people with different political beliefs than you. But sometimes political beliefs are like literally, I think the Holocaust was a good thing, which like, is unacceptable, right? So where do you draw the line? And what you just said, I, I've been trying to come to terms with that because like this, you know, we're in a very polarized place right now where it's like, if someone supports certain, what are becoming increasingly mainstream political beliefs, should I be tolerant of that, right? What I've come to terms with myself is if we agree on the problems or like want a common outcome, then we, we can see eye to eye, even if we disagree on the solutions. But if we want different outcomes, 
fuck you. <laughs> you know, that's basically where I'm standing on this. Yep. Th- that's yeah. And that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it from an outcome standpoint versus how we solve it standpoint. Yeah, that's interesting. There's agreeing on the problem that needs to be solved. Then there's like agreeing on what it looks like when the problem's solved from an outcome standpoint. The how really doesn't matter between that, but you can't work to with someone solving a problem if you see different outcomes. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that doesn't work. And yeah, that's exactly what happened in this situation where um, two black people uh, agree on the pro- I think a problem for the most part that there's just that there there's an issue here, but the outcome on dealing with that problem is different. And it was incompatible. Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Do uh, you want to go to product market fit? Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. So this is actually a listener um, uh, request slash uh, conversation that we had that we thought we'd bring on the uh, podcast. Uh, we tried to record this before, and uh, I think we we kind of got too deep in the weeds. So I'm going to try to keep this high level. Um uh, Rob uh, Snyder, if you're listening, hello. Um, I'm not sure if you prefer Rob or Robert, but um, hello. Um, Rob has a company called Surge. It's uh, S-Y-R-G. Um, and uh, th- just a little bit about what they do. They uh, s- uh, sell franchisees, um, a, a very niche uh, SaaS recruiting software. They're at the seed stage um, of venture capital investment. So this isn't necessarily a startup to last company. Um, uh, but, uh, they are funded and, uh, they're, they're really working through having, uh, to figure out their product market fit. And, uh, so Rob was curious about like how, you know, how Tyler and I have found, um, product market fit in our past experiences and current experiences. Um, and what, what was that like? Um, and what advice could we give? And he was also, um, interested in, uh, understanding how product to market fit might be different in a startup to last scenario, versus a venture capitalist, venture-backed company scenario. Um, Where do you want to start? Well, I want to start with a disclaimer, which is everyone has different definitions of this. I bet, I think we've recorded a whole episode on product market fit in the past. I bet we're going to say things that contradict our previous definitions and stuff. So like, sorry, but we'll do our best to like make this self-contained. I'd say, let's start with that. Let's start with what does product market fit mean? Now, I don't know what Robert he probably has his own definition. And if it's different from what I'm about to say, maybe this isn't helpful. But let me let me throw a definition out there and you can critique it. Um, I think you can break a startup journey into two phases. The first phase is trying to find something. And the second phase is once you found something, trying to scale it. So phase one, you're experimenting, you're iterating, you're moving fast and breaking things. And then once you've got, I mean, not that you have everything figured out, but once you have enough figured out, you say, okay, let's start like let's start operating this rather than just constantly flailing around. And to me, product market fit is the moment where you go from phase one to phase two. What do you think about that? I, I, I like that simplified overview. I, where I want to be clear now is when do you know if you've hit that moment? Yeah. How do you know that, that you hit that moment? Is it, I mean, it's... Yeah, you probably don't, but... I actually think thinking about it like there's investors is a nice framework for this, even though like I've never raised money. You have, but you're not with your current thing. But if you just think like, when could I raise a series A for this? That's when you have product market fit. And for people who don't follow this, I think you can raise seed money and pre-seed and friends and family and other things like that. And that's about giving you enough runway to discover a model, to prove a model. 
And then I, I'm I'm generalizing here. Different investors might look at it differently. But when you go raise a Series A from a venture capitalist, normally what they're going to say is, you need to be able to show me that you're going to take this money, pour it into the top of your machine, and more money is going to come out the bottom of the machine. Even if you're not raising money, you can kind of ask yourself, could I go give that pitch to an investor? And if you can, to me, that means you have product market fit. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, do you, you know, do if you put a dollar into the top of your business, into your business, does it produce more than a dollar? And if it does, then you probably are at product market fit and you should focus on, you know, putting more dollars in the top somehow. Yeah. Um, and whether that's, sell, you know, reinvesting from a start to last standpoint or raising venture capital from a venture back standpoint. I like it. Yeah. Of course, there's still optimization. Yeah. I'm not saying like you're done learning and getting better, but just that you, you're, you've got something and you can start moving on. Okay, so if we buy that definition, like if you don't have product market fit, I think Robert's real question is, what do you do to get there, right? And of course, the answer is it depends. Where where would you start there if you're in that situation? Like, how do you even decide what you need to do? Well, I'd break down the components of a working business model and make and start checking the boxes on each one of those. Uh, one would be product uh, is a box. One would be, um, you know, what I would call like. Caught like price, like revenue generation, like pricing. Um, another would be the cost to serve the customers, um, and then the third, uh, the other one would be how do I acquire customers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of those two, so I think a lot of companies get away with putting the cost one off. Like you need to be able to show some promise, but you, I think you can have product market fit without having yet viable unit economics. What do you think about that? I think you need to have strong validation that as you scale the business, uh, unit economics will be uh, profitable, or yeah, you, yeah like they have to it has to make money. Um, otherwise, you probably don't have product market fit. And that's actually you said at the beginning. What's what's the difference between if you're raising money versus if you're not? If you're not, you can say, or sorry, if you if you are raising money, you can say, well, this will be profitable when we're a billion dollar company. And that's acceptable. If you're a startup to last company, whether you're bootstrapped, even if you are raising money, if you're not, you know, hockey stick, rocket ship growth, you do have to say much, much sooner this is going to have to work because you have to fund your own operations with that money. So if it's not profitable and you're not raising money, you just don't have any hope of it working. Yep. And the whole point of unit economics is to help you see on a very small case, like a unit case, um, is the, does this thing make money or not? And you can do that on very small uh, situation um, or a very large situation, it, but it should like be profitable. And you know, it, it, it's a pretty, it's black or white, you know, whether or not it wor- the numbers work, um, no matter how big your numbers are. Now, the question is like, at pr- when you're pre-product market fit, you might have you, when you look at your unit economics, let's just say your cost to cust- acquire customers as one example, your cost of service as another example, um, and then your just call it your net, you know your your net profit per customer as a as a third, um, or lifetime value of a customer uh, as a third, then you, you can kind of look at those and go, does this work at scale? And if it doesn't, then you know what needs to change in order for that you know, to, to work at scale and, and the, you know, the things, you know, what, what has to be true in order for this to work at scale? And do I believe those things will be true? And those, those are things you have to work through. And if, if you don't have 
I think a lot of people, when they're talking about product market fit, they're trying to like squeeze into it. Um, like, and just like barely check, you know, I just want to be this company on paper versus like in your gut, does this thing work? <laughs> uh, you know, d- will this make money? And if it won't, and, and if I don't believe strongly, it's going to make money, 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 cash, um, then you probably don't have private market fit. Okay. I agree. Having said that, I think probably of the things you mentioned, the two that apply to most people, I think are product and what I'll call distribution. Um, those are normal. Yeah. But le- that leaves out rev. That, that leaves out financial metrics, and I. I so it's like. But is that I, why most companies fail to hit product market fit? Do you think? Cash is the number one uh, reason most startups fail. Well, that's why they run out. They run out of money. But I'm saying, like, if you don't, I, I'm assuming Robert knows how much money he has and knows how much he's spending. If he's not at product market fit, I'm guessing either the product's not there or the distribution's not there. Well, it, or they both could be be there, and it doesn't work from a financial standpoint. Like it's like it, there is I no guess art. So. That, yeah, sure. Yeah, so like, <laughs> if, I think if he's like growing gangbusters and it's not profitable, I hope he noticed what happened. Well, I'm not, I, I want to be very clear about there's a difference between profitability and unit pro, unit profitability. Like if you're spending ten thousand dollars to acquire a dollar customer, like and distribution is going crazy, that's stupid. Like that's not gonna that's not product market fit. Right. And I just, I just want to, I, I agree that distribution and product are, the t- are two things, but I think there's a third thing, which is financial, like a, a financial, like a uh, equation that turns something into, you know, cat, you know, $1 into more. Yeah. Okay. I'm calling that dist- I mean, distribution is, can you turn a dollar into more is, can you, can you spend money to go get oh, customers? I see what you're saying. So for, um, I would clarify that for, for me, distribution is, can I get, can I sell this? Uh, the product is this. And then the third thing is, does this generate cash? Okay, sure. So I, if it's me, I'm saying, is the problem that the product's not good enough or is the problem that it's too hard for me to sell this? Probably. Or maybe both. I mean, in the early days, when you first start a company, all of this is the problem and you have to do kind of all of this at the same time. I'm interested, can we just dive into... If the product's not good enough, what would you do? And if you're struggling too much to sell it in a profitable way, what would you do? Yeah. So uh, sure. How do you want to, how do you want to have that conversation? I feel like the distribution one's easier to talk about. Why don't so you talk about it there. from your perspective and less yeah, than CRM? Oh, cause I'm bad at this. That's why. Okay. <laughs> um, no, the, the reason I say it's easy to talk, it's, it's not necessarily easy to do, but it's easy to talk about because like there's a funnel normal, like it's very easy to visualize. Every product is different. It's kind of hard to say, but with distribution, it's like, how are you getting people in the top of the funnel? How many steps are there? So like in my case, it's pay for a Google AdWords. They click a link, see our homepage. We try to get them to convert to a free trial. They get the free trial. We send them some we do whatever for 30 days and then they pay at the end and then there's long-term churn. And you can kind of break down each of these steps and just look at the numbers and look at industry benchmarks. And I, I can just tell you right now for a less knowing CRM, our churn, fantastic. That's not a problem. Our trial to paid conversion rate, pretty good. That's not a problem. Our website visitor to free trial rate is okay, not great. But the problem if, I mean, we have product market fit, I think, but if you're looking at our funnel and saying, what do you work on? There aren't enough thing, There aren't enough people coming to the top of the funnel. So, I mean, this is how you solve any problem, right? You say, this thing's overwhelmingly big. 
I don't know what to do. So you break it down into pieces. And then each of these pieces has things within it. So for me, I'd start saying, well, how do I, and actually, this is what I'm doing next year with my, my time is how do we get more people to come into the top of the funnel? What about like early days of less selling CRM? Like when did you know you had product market fit? I mean, I never really used that term or thought about that milestone, I guess. But what happened for us is we were spending way too much money to Google AdWords. So I'm not a sales or marketing person. I didn't have any hustle on that side of the business. We spent way too much money on Google AdWords to get, you know, one, two, three users in the early days. When I saw product market fit, I, this is all like hindsight. I was not thinking this at the time. But when I started feeling that feeling you were talking about of like, is this working, that gut feeling, I was still spending way too much on AdWords, but other users were coming. Where were they coming from? They were probably word of mouth from the, the AdWords people we got. So, And this gets back to your profitability. We were spending an unprofitable amount of money on each AdWords customer. But then we saw a path where it's like, I don't know what the referral rate is, but there's some referral going on. Maybe if I'm spending $500 to acquire a user, that's not profitable. But if that person refers two or three other people, all of a sudden this is profitable. That's when I really felt it. It's like this, this machine is just working without me having to lose money on every customer we get. Sounds very similar to how we started this episode and how I was telling you about my business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you've got even more of that than I ever did, but absolutely. So it is this, on the distribution side, it's kind of like you're trying all kinds of stuff. Some of it's working, some of it's not, but then stuff just starts to work a little bit better every month. And you see you see the ability for it to eventually grow. See the You, you start seeing the ability for it to eventually support a full business. Versus versus being these like drops in a bucket. Yeah. And in terms of what do you do, right? This is supposed to be about tactics. The key is to make sure the thing you're working on is the right part of that equation, both that it matters and that you're not already doing it so well that there's another bottleneck. Um, a book I love is The Phoenix Project. It's not about this at all, but they have this cool metaphor in it where the character's at the top of a warehouse and I didn't know prior to reading this book how warehouses work, but I guess there's these different stations and like raw material comes in one side of the warehouse and they move it from station to station. Each station, like one will shape it and one will weld it and one will paint it. Um, and the there's kind of like a guardian angel character in the book. And he says to the main character, look, where is work piling up? And he says, oh, that station, all the work's piling up there. And the guardian angel says, you can improve any other station in this factory and it won't matter at all. The bottleneck's right there. That's like a lesson I take away a lot here is visualize your funnel, find the bottleneck, and I, the solution is going to be different for every company, but at least you know what to focus on. And if, you, if, if you're not drowning on leads and not able to convert them, you probably start at the top. And that means, you know, how do you, you know, assuming you have built a product that has customers, um, it's time now to go get generate demand. And, and yeah. so let's just start there. What are the ways that... You, you went about generating demand, and then maybe I can talk about Ugh. what I did with like a belt. I'm I'm terrible at this. I uh, lesson AdWords. still does not have a good answer. Yeah, we did AdWords for a long time. So my answer to this, I guess, is a ton of different things, none of which worked that well. So what but are the different you, things? Uh, AdWords, app directories like Captera and G2. Chrome Web Store was huge for us back in the day, but it is dead now. Um, content SEO stuff, affiliate program, referral program with our current users. But the point is, each of these is tiny, and they all kind of add up to a working business. And then word of mouth, user referrals, uh, user, you know, uh, really user 
referrals is really why you grow. You don't track them as referrals, but people, you, existing users telling other people to use your product yeah. is your main growth channel now. Yeah. My problem is if I tried to go raise money right now, they'd be like, what are you going to put the money? I, I don't have that thing that I said you're supposed to have. I can't put money into it. Yeah. But would you say you have product market fit? Yeah. So my definition's wrong is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But I, and I do think that you do put money back into the business. You don't have it down to a science, but you know that $1 into the business generates more than $1. That's yeah. why, that's why you're paying your people money and you're invest, you're reinvesting money back into the business. It's just not, I think people want, I think some people, this is a, I think just an observation. Some people want product market fit to be this beautiful formula that is, you know, true all the time, but it's, it very much is a, you know, do you, do you, does, do you believe, and you know, would you put your own money in this because it, generates money over time. And you don't necessarily need to know exactly perfectly how that money is going to be divvied up and down to the cent. It's like, listen, if I put a million dollars in this thing, are we, do I have confidence you know, over the next 18 months that that million yeah. dollars is going to be worth more? And this, this goes back to what you said, the difference of a startup to last versus a VC backed company, we couldn't raise venture capital, but we actually do. We have a $12,000 a month marketing budget. We can spend, I don't, I don't know exactly how it breaks down, but let's say 5,000 a month go to AdWords. We've tried to go above it and the ROI starts to drop. So we, we can't scale it, but we know how to spend $5,000 on that. And we sponsor a few conferences and pay our affiliates commissions. So we do have ways to spend money that brings more money in. We just don't have like this scalable channel that needs more money. And I want to call something out. That leads to a second thing that I've been thinking while, we were, while you were talking earlier. And that is, um, depending on your market... Um, you may have a a different opportunity. Uh, you may hit product market fit and not have much opportunity to grow. In other words, mm. um, you know, at some point, you, just because you're in a small market and you have a you dominate the market, doesn't mean you don't have product market fit. In fact, it just means you can't grow anymore from that product, and you need to build a new product and or enter a new market. Um, but you do have product market fit, and so um, I I just I think it's much more of a does the business work. Um, <laughs> in some way that you can like get someone to believe, including yourself, that this thing generates cash. And, you know, whether that's a penny or $5 million a year, it's, it, that's the definition. And, you know, it, it, and, you know, for venture capital, uh, that bar is extremely high, uh, you know, depending on the venture capitalist, it may be, you know, you need to be able to exit for a three hundred million dollars uh, enterprise value versus, or a billion dollars enterprise value, versus a startup to last company. You know, it really is your own definition of success, and I think that's the big mm -hmm. difference. Is your pro my like like let's just say Legup Health is a ten thousand dollar per month, you know, business, and that's the max it can be. Cool, I'll move. Uh, that sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're running a little short on time here. Can we move on to product maybe and. It's, it's, we talked about some tactics, although a little high level about Maybe, distribution. What would we do with product? Well, let me before we go there, let me just share my distribution version mm -hmm. of what you said real quickly. So I did exactly the same thing. I started with customer interviews. Um, and I, I one thing I do very differently than Tyler is I am very much leveraging relationships for introduction. So I'm much more about like, especially for the first 100 users, getting on the phone, talking face to face, uh, you know, 
getting to know them, learning from them, and then getting introduced to other people. Um, and so that's a great tactic, I think, early on. But yeah, you do need to do other things. The things that we that have worked for us, um, we do have the word of mouth concept happening naturally. Um, AdWords, we haven't tested, but we have done some social media advertising and that has worked. Um, we have done some outreach um, on social media to random people. Um, that has worked. Uh, the um, the other thing that has worked is referral, uh, setting up referral programs from people who uh, work with our users but don't serve them on the problem that we're doing. Um, that has been really promising. The other thing that was really helpful that we did um, was we have got really clear about what the ideal customer was that we wanted to bring on. And we made a list of a lot of people like that and then focused on those people. So if you haven't done that exercise yet of like, what's my market? And if that's a huge number, like what's a smaller version of that that's ideal? Um, and then just getting them those people on paper, those businesses on paper with an email address is a f- big first step of like, how do I go reach them? Because at the end of the day, like just go email them all and say, hey, can I talk to you and learn from you? That's a big first step in the, the help for us. So anyway, um, I did that fast because we're on short on time, but um, you want to move on to product? Yeah, we, we talked about this kind of offline recently that similar, if you extract what we just said about distribution, it's take a big problem, break it into steps and figure out, you know, where, where the biggest area for opportunity for you to work on is the same thing's true with product, but I think products much more amorphous. There's not this clean funnel. It's kind of harder to define what is this thing supposed to do. And what, what you recommended to me that made a lot of sense is the answer to this is NPS. It's, it's coming up with some kind of a metric and and not everything needs to be metric driven. In the very early days, probably it's just talking to people, but it's NPS lets you say, how happy are people? Are they getting happier or less happy? Why? And just every day you you address whatever those things are. Is that am I characterizing what you said? You know, it's funny. We were pre-recorded this and I said NPS was one of the ways we measured this at People Keep. And I think that works for a much larger level of product market fit that might meet the caliber of a venture capitalist. But for a startup to last company like Leg Up Health, I'm not tracking NPS. I'm talking to my users and I'm getting the, I know from talking to them that they love the product because I'm mm-hmm. asking them, you know, and I'm watching what they're doing. So it's not, I, I don't think that's a one size fits all, but it is one way, especially for a venture back company to say like, yeah, the product is delivering. Let me push back a little on that. I, I agree. Talking to users, there's no replacement for it and you have to do it. I do think NPS, and, and for people who aren't familiar, that's net promoter score where you say from zero to 10, how likely are you to refer to this to a friend? And then normally the, the follow-up question is, what could we do to make that number go up by one? Yep. Um, if, you, if you look at it as an aggregate number, if you have 20 customers, 50 customers, it's not going to be meaningful. But if you look at it individually, if you say, I'm going to survey people once a month or every quarter, which long-term you don't want to do that, once a month is way too often. But when you're getting started, you can see our individual numbers going up or going down to see are the changes I'm making to the product impacting this person's happiness level. I agree. And I think that the only thing I'm saying is don't do that via the internet, have that conversation Mm, face to face early on and say, Hey, Tyler, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10, how likely to recommend this? And please be honest. What would you say? You'd say five. Okay. Well, what's the reason for your score? Like why, why five and not seven? And then ask them questions and you're going to identify where your product's falling short. And if they say 10, don't, don't believe them unless they submit a referral. Cause like, if you're not getting refer, if people are giving you tens on NPS and you're not actually getting referrals, it's not, something's not happening. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I need to do more of that. <laughs> we ask people for reviews, but 
I guess that's kind of a similar idea. Um, yeah. And then like the, the hard thing, or it's not that it's hard, but different for every company is what do you actually do? Like, how do you make your product better? I mean, I don't think there's anything we can really say here. It just depends on the product, right? Or, do you have any like general, like generally ap- applicable tips there? Get a use, get someone to use the product, ask them how that went, reflect on what they said, make changes, repeat. Yeah. Until you feel like everyone's, the majority of people are going, this is good. This is great. Oh, and I want to tell you, tell someone else about you. Yeah. My only kind of like, I think general purpose tip here is when you're, when you're hearing that feedback, people ask for features and you should not accept that. You should identify problems and then make up your own feature. Um, someone's going to say, well, I wish there were a button here that did this thing. And if you build, if you, if you respond to that, everyone's going to, you're going to end up with like, you know how they say a, ca- a camel is a horse designed by committee. What you want to do is say, why do they need that button here? What are they facing? What's their workflow? And then design your own solution to that problem. I, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying, but it's, it's re- making me realize that at the end of the day is if someone's, you're probably not ready on product market fit. If people aren't saying, I love your, I not necessarily, I love your product, but I'm telling people about your product. Like the ability, the people talking about your product is probably the biggest indicator that you've nailed the product side. If you don't have word of mouth at all on your product, do you have product market fit? I think some products lend themselves to word of mouth more than others. And like I have some, but people don't really talk about CRMs. I understand that there's like scales of this, but if you're not getting any referrals and you're getting churn, cancellate. Let's, so uh, there's two parts of this. One is, a customer that is staying and referring a customer that is staying and then a customer that is not staying like yeah p- cancellations are a terrible indicator that you have a good product or an indicator that you have a terrible product your product's not there um unacceptable churn is what i would say um so is uh, you know sort of a, a customer no referrals in, in in the opposite way and so it's, it's not necessarily that you need to have certain, some number of referrals it's that if you're not like if you're losing more customers on a churn basis than you're gaining from word of mouth, yeah, something's wrong. Oh, I, I disagree. I, I think most businesses, many, many businesses, cannot hope to have more referral, more word of mouth than they have churn. Really? Especially in the early, I we we've asked we. It's hard for us to measure it, so we're not sure. But I'd say at best we break even. Yeah. So, but, but, but in the early days, I want to be very clear. It's, it's, it may suck, but the goal is that by the time you get to private market fit, you've got it to a place where it is profitable. It, it works. I, I, you know, and maybe it's not one for one, but there's something happening there that's predictable. And the people are canceling, not for reasons that you can control, but for uncontrollable reasons that don't, you know, they aren't going to like, oh, you're you're a competitor because your product sucks. They're going. They're saying things like, uh, you know, th- the use case I used you for is no longer necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cancellation notices are super important if uh, if yeah, wh- the, if you're having people cancel. Yeah. Why Why are people canceling? That's a yeah. you know thing. So how, okay, how do you know well, when you're done with the product other than NPS? Is there any other? When did you know with less knowing CRM? Well, that's another. I mean, you're probably never done. Hopefully, um, I don't think. Like, is it important to know if you have product market fit? Whatever definition you have for it, the, the answer is probably not. The answer, like, what you should be saying is, what's my goal? And hitting product market fit is not a goal. If it's, I want to go raise more money, 
that's a goal. And the question is not, are, do you have product market fit? The question is, can you convince someone to invest in you? In my case, it, uh, I mean, it was just, honestly, I never even questioned it. I was like, we're growing, keep growing. <laughs> like I, there was no, it was about the journey more than the destination. And so whenever we crossed MPS was not an important moment for me. Or when, NPS, uh, product market fit, sorry. Yeah, so I guess um, when, if let's just say that you have a product and you're wondering like, am I ready to say this product is done, I need to focus on distribution. When is that? I mean, I, I never did that. Um, okay. I should have, I should have, but, but again, startup plus, make it whatever you want. Yeah. I, I love product-led growth. I want my distribution to come because the product's really good and that's it. And that's, that, that's the point earlier is like, that's a choice. That's not necessarily a requirement for product market fit. Whereas for both of us, I think we both like our product to grow more than our, our churn. And so it, we, we want product like growth. So we're going to spend more time on the product, but if that's not the business that you're operating, it's more of a higher churn, you know, but much more sales in the front end to account for that churn. That's a different story. Yeah. It always makes me so nervous and stressed out when you hear about these, like, high growth startups that are like bigger than less knowing serum is now and they're like oh yeah we have 10 percent month over month churn it's like you're churning more than your entire customer base every year but they make up for it they have such good distribution that it, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah and the business is probably that way like use cases run out there's a reason for the churn that kind of thing yeah. um i have one learning to share related to so so on the product side one one thing that helped me at leg up health is i'm no longer embarrassed about the product so that was a kind of a mm. gut feeling for me. It was where I don't, oh, I'd, I'd show this to someone that I really respect and have them not like feel bad. Like, I don't feel like I have to like say, oh, I'm sorry about that or anything like See, that. I, I still am. Yeah. Really? <laughs> That's so funny. Not, I mean, not as embarrassed. Actually, I was just talking about this with my brother the other day. I think I'm more embarrassed by the product now than I was five years ago. It's much, much, much better, but my standards have increased. But anyway, I, I think that's a very good point that you're making, though. There, there's a sense of embarrassment that's like, I know I'm about to show this person a piece of crap. Here's, here's a better way of saying <laughs> it. It's like, you're no longer selling the future. You're just selling the present on the product. Mm, mm, I like, like that better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Here's what the product is. Do you want it? And people say yes. Okay. That's the, you have product market. You have product fit. Right. Versus, yeah. versus, oh, yeah, but we're going to add that feature. In we're going to add weeks. that. Yeah. Sign up now and we'll have it later. Yeah. You should just be saying, that's a, that's a great part of product market fit. I like that a lot. Take it or leave it. This is how it is. Imagine it never gets any better. Would you still buy it if it never gets any better? That's, that's interesting. Yep, that's the product question. Um, I have one learning that I want to share before we sign off. And that is, um, I did this wrong with Leg Up Health. I think I could have gotten to product market fit faster with Leg Up Health. And I do think the answer is to the question of, do I think I have product market fit with Leg Up Health? I do. I don't think I have it with Leg Up Benefits, but yes, with Leg Up Health. Um, and I just, I'm not embarrassed about the product. People take it as it is and um, distribution channels are working. And I believe that if I put more money into Leg Up Health, it's going to make more money than I put in. And so I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm shifting into the second mode of the business next year. And figure scale is the is the focus, but I did something this year that I think I got wrong, and I want to um, talk about specialization and, and niches uh, niches for a second. So there's you know there's product and then there's distribution um, specialization. Um, I think from an early stage standpoint, one thing that Robert has going for him is that they're extremely specialized in niche in niche um, from a uh, uh, franchises focus SaaS recruiting software focus um, at Surge and. That means that they're they're going to have a very narrow 
like list of people, a small list of people that have a very similar problem. And so they can be very clear about what they do for them. And I, I love that type of product specialization for leg up health. That was Utah individual health insurance, um, for people who buy, the, who work like very small, much smaller number of people who buy their own health insurance, like, um, you know, in the U S and so that helped me, but where I got, where I got sideways, I over-specialized on distribution. Distribution in the early days is exactly the opposite. While you want to specialize on product in the early days, you want to do the exact opposite on distribution. You want to throw all sorts of noodles on the wall going after your target market, which is specialized, but the tactics in which you are going after them are not specialized at all. You don't want to specialize until you got that a special specializing on distribution uh, tactics is for post product market fit, not pre product market fit. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't go deep until you have something that's working. Yep. Um, Sounds good. Or, or don't cool. limit yourself in terms of tactics because you're you're trying to specialize. I did that with like up health by focusing too much on real estate agents. Gotcha. Uh, all right. Well, we we have run a little long here. Um, any closing thoughts, or you want to sign us off? I feel I feel good. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week. See ya.